Welcome to Spark, practices and habits that spark a deeper love. In this series, we're listening to stories from different people in the community about how what they do in their everyday lives connects to God's loving and renewing work in the world. I have conversations every week that inspire me as I learn from and about different people. Our everyday lives really can spark deeper love. Today, I'm joined by Christy Nellimo. Christy works for the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, a non-profit that helps people affected by humanitarian crisis to survive, recover and rebuild their lives. Today, she'll be talking about that, but also more broadly, what she gets up to in her everyday life and how she sees its connection um, to renewal. Hi, Christy. I'm so (coughs) glad... Heather, yeah, this is exciting to chat with you. Um, as you know, we're talking about um, stories from the community in ways that just everyday life, how our everyday life connects to God's loving and renewing work um, around us. And so maybe we can just start with the simple question of like, what what is your everyday work? Or I know there's lots of things that you do, but maybe you can just talk a little bit about... Um, about what you do in your everyday. Yeah, Um, I work at the International Rescue Committee, which is one of two resettlement agencies in Salt Lake City. And the International Rescue Committee is sometimes referred to as the IRC. And um, IRC does a lot of things in this world. They, we have 40 some odd offices globally. So kind of that emergency response We are in the field for disasters, um, conflicts, um, any kind of emergency needs and and um, development and sustainability. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side, we have our asylum, asylum, resettlement and integration program. And that's across 27 offices in the United States and I think six offices now in Europe. And that's the team I'm on. So working with clients and and new Americans escaping or being displaced by natural disasters and shattered lives, sometimes due to conflict, sometimes due to famine, different needs and reasons, um, and having uh, a space to be resettled in a third third country option. Hmm. And so resettled clients are about 1% of the total displaced people in the world. So most People who are displaced are internally displaced people, which means they're displaced within their own countries. This is true in Syria. This is very true in South America and places like El Salvador and Guatemala um, and Iraq, where you can't really leave, but you have to move for safety reasons. Um, And then if you do leave that country, you can claim asylum in a neighboring country. You would leave your country to a neighboring country, and that's where you would claim asylum, either through the United Nations, um, a refugee camp, or an embassy. And then your story is heard, corroborated against evidence of that region. And if you meet the definition that the UN set as a refugee, then you are kind of put on this giant wait list. And an average 
I think it used to be 15 years, the person waiting to be resettled. So most folks just kind of build a life in, in those second places, those places they escaped, awaiting that third country location for resettlement. So that's kind of the bigger picture of what resettlement does. I personally manage the education program at the IRC office in Salt Lake City. Three major buckets of programming that I, I kind of work with program designing for, monitoring and evaluation um, of all the activities and services provided to refugees and new Americans. Those three buckets are digital inclusion, youth services for three years old to 12 years old, including early ed, school enrollments, ongoing school support, caregiver training, and college and career readiness. And then that third bucket is adult education and your initial cultural orientation trainings. Mm -hmm. I love hearing about um, yeah, just how layered it is at the IRC and how um, multifaceted it is to support like communities of people who have experienced displacement and in that displacement in multiple facets then need like an infrastructure of support and like personal support mm -hmm. I'm like having known you for a lot of years like hearing just different ways that you um, participate in yeah, making that possible I guess is what I'd say so maybe as you've worked in in this um area for a long time I don't know what what question you'd want to answer first but like what drew you to it or what part of the what part of this work is most um connecting for you yeah your first question about what drew me to the work mm -hmm. um I have a background in education um and international studies and so after my master's program which I did completely abroad in Shanghai, China. So I've always been drawn to living in new spaces and interacting kind of cross-culturally and just being in that space of unfamiliar expectation of what could happen. And I feel like that's what drew, drew, drew me to IRC also is that ability to be in an international setting in the middle of Salt Lake City, Utah. And in, um, in 2015, there was the Syrian revolution at that time, and there was lots of images of just a community and, and a people, the people of Syria, stepping up to a very violent dictatorship. And um, for however you look at that politically, something about just the droves of refugees having to cross dangerous waters or across land and kind of seeking these new lives, uh, I just felt like I wanted to be a part of it. I've been an assistant professor for cross-cultural inter and intercultural studies. I've also been a study abroad director. I've been a youth pastor, which was kind of a fun turn. And I felt like this was the next step to really dive into program management and resettlement for refugees in light of that war. And I started as a caseworker at the IRC it's the folks that pick the new arrivals up from the airport, set up their apartment, take them to all their services, social security numbers, grocery store orientations, bus orientations. It's a job that is just on the move and um, probably the most influential job I've ever had in my life. And I was the caseworker for the first Syrian family in Salt Lake City. And I felt that was very divine for me. Like I had been drawn from that 
that conflict and the people that I, I just was hearing stories on the news and listening to these heroic pilgrimages to safety. And I wanted to be part of it. And then I come in the ground level and direct service and I'm working with Syrians and those Syrians became my friends. I'm still texting them last month. Like, how are you doing? Did you have family in the earthquake? They are, are people I'm in community with now. Not while I was a caseworker, there's healthy boundaries, but I feel like that is what drew me to the work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I've stayed in it because it aligns with my values. Every day I can show up at work and I, I'm waking either a welcoming presence for a new family. I'm helping troubleshoot issues around education or education access. I work with so many different colleagues from a different varieties of, of experiences and backgrounds. So not only am I working for a community of newly arrived refugees and new Americans, I also get to work alongside folks with that same lived experience, which I feel creates better programming and better insight and that feedback loop of, we think we're doing this right, but we don't have this lived experience. So let's bring in other voices into the design process, into the monitoring and evaluation process. And I feel like that is just a privilege and very rare to work with Afghans, Somali, Sudanese, all within your team in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so it's just, has aligned with my deep value of, of being connected to the world, of being challenged, having a mirror in front of me to my own cultural biases or unconscious biases. And I'm always having to ask myself, am I creating space for somebody else? Am I taking up too much space as a white extroverted woman who used to be in theater and loves to be big and talk and collaborative and how can I share a space? When I think about that, like working with different people, like there's so much beauty in that. And yet I imagine there's so much complexity in that. Um, like, are there any insights that you have found after working in this space for all these years? So I have a staff member from Afghanistan who was part of a lot of situations in Afghanistan and the United States and all this lived experience. Um, I think of him as Jesus with skin on, like he just sits in pain with people. And there's something about the amount of suffering I've had in my life compared to somebody who grew up in Afghanistan, but his ability to sit and hold suffering um, has been an example to me. He's one individual with, there's many examples of this. Um, and in this, this last year was probably the hardest of my time at IRC with the Afghan crisis, um, coming, uh, coming out of, uh, kind of the Biden administration pulling out of Afghanistan in August of 2022, created kind of a deluge of folks trying to escape, especially ones that were connected to the military, um, so IRC responded to that emergency response by kind of opening our doors and IRC Salt Lake office, average of 50 people a week. And I don't know if I would have made it through this year without staff members like Shafi. In a very tragic situation, he was supporting a family 
that directed a lot of their pain at him. And even though that wasn't fair, his response was to sit in that suffering with that family for days. This staff member showed me what it looks like to sit with somebody in suffering and not make it about yourself. And I think it's also really stunning in this moment because I think like the this the way that you're seeing these characteristics of God come from an Afghan human. And I think there's something just even as you talk about your where you're drawn, your heart is drawn to like and has been, like in the way the way you studied and then where you went for your master's program and internships and then just I think that's why I always really enjoy having conversations with you because there's a kind of presence of God that you discover I think in places and through people um that maybe just a lot of us don't always have access to and so we don't have the ability to see like the presence of God in those spaces. And then those are the places that you're drawn to. And then I think in my conversations with you, I'm always like, yeah, the you're telling me about the things that you're learning. And it's like, yeah, God's loving and renewing presence is happening through this staff member, this Syrian family or this Iraqi like community. And I'm always, I think that's always something that I feel um like his gift in knowing you is that you're finding that renewing, loving presence in spaces that maybe there's there's caricatures about too a lot of the time that we have caricatures about. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I definitely put this particular staff but person on a pedestal just because of that, and and I was in a similar situation where I felt unjustly accused of something, and he just came in my office and was like, you know who you are, you don't have to be someone else <laughs> and so I he's not the only one but he's just the most recent example what it feels like to to see God's renewal in, in spaces that feel really fraught and hard I am um, I've been thinking too about this you had an opportunity not too long ago to go to MIT and I, you know, I think it's just really exciting to hear sometimes the stories too that bring about innovation and creativity out of this complexity. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear about, um, or if you'd be willing to share about how that that transpired with MIT. Well, I've had a community volunteer who's also a professor at the University of Utah, and we've been working together since 2018 on workshops for youth, kind of uh, career exposure and university exposure for young people 15 to about 19 years old. And I um, just started with bringing them up to the university and they had this place called Digital Matters and these students put on VR headsets or use 3D printers or kind of just gel and hang out with college students who are design majors or different programming majors and kind of exposing them to what, what kind of pathways you could take in school that are not your traditional pathways and exposing them to the world of design, which is huge. 
And so those really, that relationship with this professor has developed and we started working with his class to um, these, the school of design students who would design projects that we would use within IRC. And then we would bring community members from refugee backgrounds to the class and give these students feedback on their projects. Like, oh, you're designing for us, but you don't seem to understand this aspect of resettlement or this lived experience I have and kind of feedback to students who are in the design space and iterating on that with someone's in, insight on, on what they've lived through or feel would be more appropriate. And that has developed into kind of a really fun ongoing emerging tech program where we use virtual reality in our initial cultural orientation trainings. And we've created videos and modules that uh, new arrivals from all over the world can put on a headset and enter a US school, enter a school bus, go to a pharmacy, go to the doctor's office. And in that virtual space, we're helping folks kind of see and feel comfortable in a new setting before they go and do it with their caseworker or with someone from the IRC. That's like aspect one of that, this project. The other part was they were, were kind of leveling the playing field for technology. Who owns uh, a, 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 like a VR headset? Wealthy people, people who are on the, like the cusp of technology and usually in higher education or can afford games and all these things. It's kind of this status symbol to have technology. And so by bringing some of the best technology into your initial resettlement training, and we're exposing folks to pretty cool technology early on and not making it a barrier or something that's other, but saying, hey, 90-year-old grandma from Sudan, hang out on that headset, go on that school bus, and they laugh, and they have a great time, and they don't have to be whiz tech people. They just get to be there, and they get to have a chance to work with technology that will probably be ubiquitous in 10 years, right? And then they're not gonna be further behind in that exposure. And so this professor had a research semester at MIT this last fall and invited myself and our shared intern to come to MIT, um, to the lab in which she's doing research and kind of present our project and work with some other um, former refugees and new American youth that were creating some poetry and wanted to look at the VR headsets to see if there's a way they can incorporate it. And it was this really cool collaboration. Um, it, was a, it was very justifying that MIT wanted us to, to kind of show off this project. And I'm hoping it, it goes further, but even if it doesn't, it's not owned by anybody and it's very collaborative and it only works with this kind of feedback loop cycle with students and former refugees and having experts in like high-end academia and then practitioners who are on the field and then clients who get to kind of give us feedback on it. It just feels like it's shared. Mm. That's why it's so fun. It, and it always just sounds fun when you talk about it. And I think the language that you've used a lot, even in the programs that you build is like digital inclusion. Mm -hmm. Like this, you talk about like leveling, leveling the field so that there's access, access to people that come from wherever, no matter kind of where their starting point is, that there would be programs that you develop that becomes 
allows for there to be inclusion where often there just hasn't been or there would be barriers. And so part of it is building these programs that remove barriers. And again, it's just so, it's just so inspiring to talk about it. And I know in the middle of it, it probably doesn't feel that inspiring all the time, but I feel like when I talk to you, I always feel so inspired by <laughs> by what you're doing. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a pretty incredible team. Um, and it took me some time to have a team because grants are how you build a team at IRC or in any nonprofit. And so it, that's a hard skill that's been fun to learn because it also creates space for new programs because you bring in new staff with their own backgrounds and innovation and yeah I think that's why I love managing people and managing teams and or building teams is because you never know what's going to come out of problems you know if you actually go to the collaborative space and you don't have a preconceived notion of what the solution is but you really come curious and I try to manage that way. Sometimes I'm like, we got to get this report out. But on my best days, I hope I hope I can remain curious with my team. Well, and when your team comes from all kinds of different backgrounds, and like I can imagine that it's like there's all kinds of creative ideas that can emerge from that space. Um, I can imagine that. Totally. I think so many other world problems would be solved if we didn't have so many people in limbo in this world. Mm-hmm. all the talent in this world like crazy percentage of it is stuck in camps or limited access to education or surviving through natural disasters or climate change where they can't stay in the places they live or inherit farms that have been in their families or generations because of drought or floods it is so much of our innovation is lost because there's so much talent that's untapped in this world. I think that's too like a wonderful perspective that instead of seeing people as a burden or seeing people as um, like weighing on other countries because their own countries have been in such volatility, like to see people as innovators and to see people as as contributors and to see um people as bringing and adding value like i think i just think that's the story that's the that's the story to tell ourselves and to tell each other and and um, yeah we're all image bearers like as people of faith believing that we are image bearers and so even just the way that you talk about your team talk about people it's just so connected to who we are who we are in in light of how god wants us and sees us readable yeah um like it just all this is so it's so beautiful to hear the ways that you are partnering with people from all around the world and i think um it, it feels like an invitation to me when i hear you talk about it. so i would love for you just to name ways that people could partner um, and volunteer or be a part of what it is that you've talked about this far so there's a lot of ways to partner with IRC but there's one pathway to do it (laughs) so if you want to partner as a volunteer or donations or any of those things you contact um volunteer at slc i mean volunteer slc at rescue.org and i can send that to heather as well and it 
gets you into a pipeline of getting a volunteer orientation. And at that volunteer orientation, you will be presented with a slew of options. You can work at our farms with our entrepreneur farmers or help with gardens for community gardeners. You can be on my team as a digital inclusion tech squad member where you meet with somebody for six weeks, teaching them how to use the computer. Not hard stuff, like your basic stuff on a computer. You don't have to be a tech whiz. We have childcare volunteers so that our um, the women in our programming can attend all the same classes as their husbands or if they're single moms, because usually they would be home with children. And so we try to eliminate all barriers for access for everybody. Um, we have student support volunteer opportunities where you can help students with their homework. Oh, there's so many opportunities. There's healthcare mentors. There's transportation volunteers. Anything you want to do, but you have to go through the volunteer orientation and then you get a background check. Um, and then there's an additional training for the specific area you want to help with. We also have huge events throughout the year for fundraising and those kind of come in the spring and in the fall. And then every October, we do a winter clothing drive for folks to kind of go shopping for a full-on winter outfit. And then every December, we have a program called Light One Candle, where you could buy items off of a family's wish list. I love that. Just as we close, I'd love to hear, like, what are some of the things that you do to be able to stay present to, um, like, a really... Yeah, a, a challenging, like you said, this year has been one of the most difficult for you, like coming out of a pandemic and then needing to, to activate really quickly to resettle um, people coming out of Afghanistan. Um, yeah, what do you do to be able to stay present so that you can continue to be curious um, and innovative and creative? What are your practices to be able to be able to stay present? It's probably an area I need to grow in. So these will be a few, a short list of things. And then I probably have a much longer list of things I'd love to create as consistainable practices in my life. I have two small children. And so when I get home from a crazy day, I go straight into making dinner and playing and bath time and books and cuddles and prayers and all the things. Um, that takes another few hours and then it, you hit like eight o'clock and you have this tiny time. And sometimes I just wanna be by myself. I feel like that's really a part of my practice is how can I kind of quiet time that's just me. I, I like to journal and I take long baths. I've been starting to run in the morning. So just adding more of that running kind of mental space Something I do that's really funny is I, I, I joined an adult tap dancing class. <laughs> and so I, I tap every Saturday at Rise Up School of Dance, which is in Missio. And I'm one of three intermediate tappers in the adult program. And I do the same recitals as my daughter in five-year-old creative dance every year. And I feel like tap dancing has no purpose other than joy. So trying to find things that are joyful, I think is really helpful kind of to balance out how hard the world is. Um, I have really close, great friends that I do life with and I can be honest and sad, but I can also be happy and fun. And 
I love hosting people in my home and learning about them and learning about what's going on in their lives and in the world and kind of that fun back and forth. And I love, 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 love to travel. So if there's any opportunity to get a grandma to babysit my children, I definitely go outside of Salt Lake City. I don't know if those, and prayer. I mean, prayer is not something I do separate from my job though. It's very integrated into it. Sometimes I come to Missio on Sunday during worship and I create, I cry. Like during worship, I create, it creates spaces for me to just be sad. And I think it's that release sometimes of like all that I had carried that week or what's going on in this world to just be sad and okay with that. And I think Missio creates that space in worship services that I really appreciate. Thanks for just telling us about some of the practices that help you help you stay present. Um, and maybe just what if there's anything lastly that you would want us to know as you lean in and listen to these communities of people. Like, is there anything that you would want to say as we close out today? Like insights that you've had or wisdom that you've gleaned that you think would be good for us all to hear or Sometimes when I tell people my job is refugee resettlement, it's almost like, like currency, like it's interesting and people want to know about it and it's unique. Um, and I feel thankful for that because it also creates these connections to serving those communities and understanding those communities better. But I also think it has been a temptation to become my identity. And so not if you're hearing this and I'm not sure if people are like that girls, I don't know what she's saying, but if some people are like, well, that's really inspiring. That's great. That every job has something in it that is beautiful and divine and interesting and can cultivate curiosity and shared space and a sense of this beautiful world and all its complexity and how God's moving in it, despite suffering and pain and comp complex things you wish didn't exist. And so I, I just, I think I want to just say in the end of this podcast, and thank you for thinking of asking me and wanting to talk about it, that this, I'm trying hard to make this not my identity and that it's something that I have a privilege to be part of, and I know that might just be seasonal. Like, I'm not sure when this will shift, um, but that I, I don't want it to be my identity at Missio either. Is that okay to say? Oh, absolutely. I think, I think it's a really important thing to say. It's like a boundary. It's like you're, there's this thing that you do that you love that is complicated that isn't always easy but you're also like you said like part of who you are is that you're a mom part of who you are is that you're a woman who loves to travel part of who you are is that you're a woman who has really deep and close friends like you tap dance and you are part of so yeah I think I think the thing that comes through in this is that yeah today you talked about IRC but IRC isn't like and your job and what you do there isn't who you are like who you are is broader and bigger and wider than that and 
does this work that you do, um, is it catalytic from your values? Yes. But does it define you? No. And so yes, exactly. Yeah. I think I, I want to just say gratitude for you naming that and declaring that as we've talked about this. It's hard for Americans to do that. Mm. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? I just feel like Americans connect so much of who they are with what they do. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do you first thing you ask somebody you meet at a dinner party? Oh, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And it's communicates kind of where you are in the space. If there's somebody you want to be connected to for your own interests, and it's hard to just, I think, in our society to not talk about your job and not feel like it's a defining piece of you. And it is maybe a defining piece, but you're right, like not who you are. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. After chatting with Christy today, I think there were a number of practices that came out of this conversation. But one that stood out to me is the possibility of joining in at the IRC. Such a valuable opportunity to learn from varied communities of people. I'll link the website that she mentioned, but there's also, if you just type in IRC Volunteer Opportunities Salt Lake City in your browser, it'll pop up. I hope that listening to this today has sparked in you a deeper love.